as Rob said. We're going to look at the resurrection today. This is, um, well, as Rob was saying, something we need to know when we're having conversations with people uh, because it sort of is the centre of our faith. Um, it's incredibly important. So what we're going to deal with today, and this might just prompt you to, I guess, take even more notice of this. I mean, I sit there most weeks. You're not going to remember everything, but hopefully this will just spur you on um, a bit. What if uh, a, a sceptic came to you and said, oh, don't really believe in the resurrection. The disciples were just having hallucinations when they saw Jesus um, because they were so upset because they lost their friend. What do you say to that? Um, I suppose the first one. What if someone said to you, oh, well, the disciples were just lying. They just made it up uh, as a good story to try and, um, I don't know, sell books or something. <laughs> That's probably not why they do it, but, you know, it made it up as a lie um, that it didn't really happen. Or what about the sceptic that comes to you and says, oh, look, the disciples didn't actually preach this. Uh, this whole thing is a made-up myth. It's a legend. It came about 300 years later uh, in a convention where they all voted on what to, to decide to put what in the Bible, you know, sort of like the Da Vinci Code, I think, uh, spoke about. So I guess they're just three pretty easy um, criticisms that I'm sure if we were questioned with that, we'd probably first think, oh, gee, hang on, what, what do I say to that? Um, so hopefully today this will... This will give us some ammunition, I suppose. Okay, so we've been doing a few sermons on um, witnessing to atheists uh, the past few weeks. And just before I get into this one, uh, i sort of make a couple of comments on that from, I suppose, my own story uh, or some things that I've learned that might be relevant uh, to you. Um, I think it's incredibly important to have material uh, to back your case up and to know that material and to know it in a sort of a loose script. Um, but... I guarantee you can never learn every single script. And I know that's not what we're trying to, trying to do, but it's always good to have a couple of things up your sleeve in case things start to go south in a conversation or if you, if you need a little bit extra. So I actually I listen to a, a radio show on a podcast every week. It's an American guy who, who is a Christian, stands up for what we believe. He gets people calling in from all sorts of faiths, walks of life, um, whatever. And he, he's actually written a book called Tactics, and it goes through a range of tactics he uses uh, when it comes to speaking to people that don't believe so that you can sort of navigate conversations without seeming awkward and, and, and sometimes, you know, without seeming scripted, I suppose, too, because you're not, you're not going to have it every time. So his main tactic, which I want to just share with you guys today, uh, like I said, will enable you to navigate in any circumstance. Whether what religion or what we're talking about, you can even use this with in other conversations too. And it's really good because you can do it without knowing anything at all about the topic. So it's really handy. When someone makes a claim, firstly you ask them, what do you mean by that? Okay, and then they'll go on to explain it and you might be able to draw some comments from that explanation. Then if you're still stuck, how did you come to that conclusion? So two questions. That's all you need to remember. What do you mean by that and how did you come to that conclusion? Now the reason this tactic works is because questions are perfect. You, by asking them, you're not going to lose any face. You're asking for them to explain more. And, and with questions you can probe and you can get them to explain why they think this. And so you're not giving them, I believe in the Bible because it's, you know, why do you think this? You're getting them to share. Because I think in this day and age people love talking about themselves and we're probably all guilty of it too sometimes, and we so often can jump the gun a bit when we're talking to someone from another faith. 
we can say, oh, well, you believe this. Well, no, they might not. So it's important we actually get a grip of what this person thinks before we start giving out um, our opinion, I suppose, or our assessment of it. When you go to a doctor, they ask you about your symptoms and then they give you a suitable treatment. So, like I said, how many times have we rushed to make a statement um, and we've actually completely misunderstood the person? So, like I said, you don't have to be nervous at all when it comes to these questions because they're just open-ended questions. You can ask them in any situation. And with that, you can maybe uncover some double standards or you can uncover areas that they don't understand or, you know, it, it just opens things up. And that's the whole point of these conversations, isn't it? Um, so, just good, good things to have up your sleeve. What do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? Just something to remember there. Okay, on with today's sermon. Continuing with the theme, like we said, with this witnessing uh, series, um, I'm going to share with you something uh, I find offers an immense amount of benefit uh, to these type of conversations. It's something really central to our faith, like I said before, and sometimes we might not feel confident sharing it because it is... Well, not ridiculous, but, you know, it is quite a big claim we're making when we talk about the resurrection. I think this is also a really certain area of our faith. There's some things, I, you know, we, we probably don't know, um, but I think this is key and that's why it's so well-known and well-evidenced um, in, in what we've got. Now, like I said before, we're just going to go through a few facts, or in fact, Rob said it before, a few facts today that are going to help you in this, in this area. Now... Does everyone remember, it was about a year ago when I last spoke in the, in the church. Does anyone remember what I spoke on? Da, 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 da. That's all right. We, we spoke about, I mean, it's a similar topic. We spoke about apologetics. Uh, we spoke about the arguments for God. And my point is, this is just another one. Last time we spoke about the moral argument. And so we went through objective, subjective... Uh, if I, uh, yeah, I don't even remember. That's it. <laughs> you found me out. <laughs> what I did give you last time that I'm hoping will spur you on a bit today is going to be these wonderful <laughs> prizes that um, we like to see audience participation. Uh, and so there'll be from time to time in this, um, if you do get a question nearly right, um, there'll, be, there'll be some options here for some photos. I've got ten, so there you go. You're probably mostly going to get them. Yeah, well, this is, yeah. Have me back again, sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so there you go. Um, like I said, for participation. So yeah, just, I guess, also stay awake because there's a chance of chocolate um, is a good thing to remember. All right. So that is all to look forward to. Now, make sure we're up to date here. So, does anyone know, I've written it up there, but does anyone know where that picture's taken? Jerusalem. I think, yep, yep. Not yet. A <laughs> bit more detail. So that's the, that's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, which you've probably heard, yeah, yeah. Jerusalem is... Um, uh, is where they believe Jesus was um, laid to rest. And now, in the last few days, has anyone seen in the news, it was about a month ago now, um, anything regarding this? No? So what they did, and I've got an article here, 
For a 60-hour period beginning on October the 26th, researchers had unprecedented access to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is what we're looking at here. Uh, this is, of course, the, the site long venerated as the place that uh, which Joseph of Arimathea placed Jesus' body on Good Friday. That's what tradition tells us, anyway. Then on October 28th, so after that 60-hour period, the tomb was resealed and may not be reopened until, as the Nicene Creed says, he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Now, National Geographic told readers, while it's archaeologically impossible to say this is definitely Jesus' uh, tomb, there is indirect evidence to suggest that the identification of the site uh, by representatives of the Roman Emperor Constantine, some 300 years after the crucifixion, uh, may be a reasonable one. Uh, so for some history on this, uh, Eusebius, who we may have heard of before, I'm not sure, the Ro uh, suggested that the Roman Emperor Hadrian, about 100 years after Jesus' death uh, and resurrection, had a temple dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite. And uh, uh, Hadrian built that temple over the site of Jesus' tomb. Now, if you have any idea about Roman history, especially in 100 years after Jesus, that was on purpose. <laughs> there was no, you know, let, it was a let's cover up that, temp that tomb with a temple dedicated to what we go for. Uh, two centuries later, the Emperor Constantine, uh, now, and again, if your Roman history is any good, I believe he was the first one that sort of embraced the Christian message, uh, had that pagan demolished and in the process discovered what was believed to be the tomb of Jesus. Constantine ordered a church to be built around the tomb. The church we see at the site today is not the original, uh, that one was damaged by earthquakes and fires. It was repaired, later demolished uh, by a Fatimid caliph in the early 11th century, then rebuilt again, damaged again, rebuilt again, damaged again, so on, so forth. It's been there for a while, you know, in that hot spot <laughs> too. So, Yet the pilgrims kept coming, so much so that in the 16th century, the burial bed in the tomb, which is that central sort of structure there, was covered in marble. Uh, to keep people from taking home souvenirs. Now, this is a great story, uh, but is there reason to believe that it is the site of God's mightiest work, raising Jesus from the dead? What researchers found was it's perfectly consistent with what we know about how wealthy Jews disposed of their dead in the time of Jesus. Now, who can tell me a wealthy Jew that might have disposed of Jesus? Oh, Rob, you're on. You win the first frog. <laughs> now, Rob was listening because I'd already mentioned that, so we're all... <laughs> okay, so the, the presence of other tombs... Yeah, so wealthy Jews like Joseph of Arimathea. The presence of other tombs nearby shows that this area was a Jewish cemetery outside the walls of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, which is consistent with what the Gospels say, if we, if we, if we know that. Uh, just to wrap this up, Dan Bahat, the former city archaeologist of Jerusalem, put it this way. We may not be absolutely certain that the site of the Holy Sepulchre Church is the site of Jesus' burial, but we certainly have no other site that can lay, cl lay a claim nearly as weighty, and we really have no reason to reject the authenticity of the site. But really, like I said, what, what can we say to this? It's a great story. But it's also, importantly, a reminder that Christianity is a faith rooted in real time. The events that began on Good Friday and culminated on Easter Sunday took place 
not just in some mythological time, but in human history. Think of Luke's Gospel uh, and its companion volume, the Book of Acts. Luke names specific Roman emperors and governors, not Zeus and Hermes, but actually those that existed. It could hardly be otherwise because we believe we're saved by this historical act. The incarnation, death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God. And one day that history will culminate in his return in glory. We know this because the tomb that was opened last month was empty. Now, again, it could have been empty because it's the wrong tomb. My point is, it's historical, it shows there's that record there. But my point today, sorry, is, is there more to go on than just an empty tomb? Like, is that the only, when that person comes to you and says, oh, well, it's a myth. Oh, no, but there's this empty tomb. Is that all we can go on? Or do we have some more um, backing? Or, you know, these are the questions I'm sort of putting to you today and hopefully going to teach. Okay. So today's sermon is drawn from material in that book, Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Habermas and Lacona. Uh, you might have heard of them before, not sure. Uh, I read it probably three or four months ago. Wonderful book. Yeah, really recommend it. And um, you, you'll get a bit out of it today too. So, sort of the start of this sermon, why do we care about the resurrection? I mean, we went through before. Well, what if someone says it's a myth? What if someone says they were hallucinating? Why do we care that this actually happened? Um, I don't know, I could open that up to the floor. Is there any reason why you guys think that we would care to prove the resurrection? Yeah, yeah. Bill? It's just the foundation, the very foundation of the Christian faith. Yep, yeah, exactly right. So, and I guess we're all thinking that too. So we'd want to know it's right. You know, there's, there's no, no doubt about that. So I just had a few here. Uh, there are doctrines based on it. Uh, belief in it is required for salvation. It secured for us an inheritance in heaven. And I think the most important, and it, it puts the case the most bluntly, uh, is in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And you guys might want to turn there, actually, because this would be a good thing to remember. So 1 Corinthians 15, 14, in my version. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Well, <laughs> basically, if we get this wrong, what are we doing here? Um, what's the whole point of this? And that was Paul. It wasn't as if Paul was um, you know, a friend of the message beforehand. So, okay. So I hope that's convinced you that this is a worthwhile <laughs> exercise. What we're going to look at here very quickly is just some basic things from history that sort of take, or sort of ways of knowing things from history, I suppose. History 101, I've titled it. Um, and remember, why are we looking at this? Because Jesus was historical. This happened in human time. It's not some myth that we need to look at. We want to know if it stands up the records to historical inquiry. We can't find a, a videotape recording of what happened. We have to go on the historical sort of research 2,000 years ago. So I've got five principles today for us uh, to look at. Uh, the first one, multiple independent sources support historical claims. So we want to have lots of independent sources. We don't want to just have the one that's telling us everything. We want to have lots from different bits and pieces. And I guess as I'm going through these, maybe think about how this compares to other, other faiths uh, and also why 
We need things like this. Why this puts our case in a good light. Uh, affirmation by an enemy supports historical claims. So if your enemy is saying, yeah, this happened, well, then it probably happened. You know, if they're agreeing with you, but they're still your enemy. Uh, embarrassing admissions support historical claims. If there's anything in there that might be a bit embarrassing, um, you know, or, gee, they wouldn't have made that up because it's embarrassing, then we've got to think, gee, that could be historical. Eyewitness testimony supports historical claims. And, of course, early testimony. So we want to know the earliest possible sources uh, what, was, what was being said. So there are five facts. I won't test you on those, but I think you can sort of get a grip as to why uh, we need to look at those things. So we're going to use an approach today that you might have seen before, might have heard of. It's called the minimal facts approach to the resurrection. Now, that's not because we have only minimal facts, but it's we're just going to use the bare minimum facts to prove it. These minimum facts only use data that's strongly evidenced and data that's granted by virtually all scholars, even the non-Christian ones. So this is everyone that's a New Testament and there's plenty of New Testament scholars that are not Christian. They all agree to these facts. And you can use that in your conversations, obviously. One of the things, because we will use some uh, books from the Bible, one of the things, be prepared to get it thrown back at you, is, oh, well, I don't believe in the Bible, it's a fairy story. Um, you believe God wrote that, I disagree, sort of thing. Well, that's great, but that's not really what light we're using the Bible in today. The Bible is a collection of early documents written by the disciples. I'm not, in this, I'm not claiming that God inspired them. I'm not claiming that they're, uh, you know, what was it, inspired and inerrant. I'm not claiming that. I'm just using them as historical documents. The fact that they're in the Bible is beyond, you know, the scope of what we're talking about today. So the beauty of our argument, like I said, is that the four facts today are agreed upon by virtually all scholars, including the non-believing ones. They might not believe in miracles, but they still need to explain these facts. These things actually happened. Virtually all scholars agree they happened, they just don't reach the same conclusion. So remember, minimal facts, these are the facts that even the sceptical scholars grant us. Okay. Fact number one, and I think if there's anything we look at today, if there's anything you guys remember from today, it's the four facts we're going to look at. So number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. You make that claim, someone's going to say, well, back it up, prove it. How, how, you know, how do you come to that? <laughs> Using our tactics that I talked about before. Now, does anyone know who, Fredo time, does anyone know who Josephus was? Well, you, I know you've had one, so Bill, you're waving at me madly, yes. Yep, yep, very good. All right, you're on. Can you... Ooh, ooh. Um, so, yes, you're right, Bill. Josephus was, uh, yeah, an early um, first century historian. Yep, you're quite right. He was, I think he was Jewish, but then he sort of went over to the Romans when they were winning. So, I think he sort of, sort of swapped. Well, I think there's a story about him. I believe he's in a cave with some of his followers. Now, I could be getting this wrong, but he's in a cave with some of his followers and the Romans are out there and he says, right, we've all got to commit suicide here. It's all over, you know, let's do it. And he gets down to him and he says, right, oh, I'm going to join the Romans. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's, that's what happened, but I, I could be wrong on that one. Um, so Josephus wrote uh, during the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, that the Roman soldiers felt such hatred towards various Jews that they crucified a multitude of them in various postures. 
that's one. Tacitus, uh, in the second century, refers to crucifixion as the most extreme penalty. So, sorry, these are all sources that are obviously non-biblical uh, that we have the historical documents of. Crucifixion actually was that bad that Romans wouldn't even allow fellow Romans to be crucified. It was only worthy of the Jews or, you know, some other, uh, some other race. All four Gospels attest to the fact that Jesus was crucified. But like I said before, just because I'm using the Bible doesn't mean that sort of special pleading or anything like that. The original Gospel accounts were individual, reliable documents written over a period of 40 years by people. That's all I'm saying. They're historical documents. But we can look at some other sources. Uh, Lucian of Samosata said, The Christians worship a man to this day, he who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. Who knows, some good questions coming up here, who knows what the Talmud is? Deborah. Yes, yeah, essentially. I, I have it in my mind that it's sort of a commentary on, on the Old Testament, which forms, yes, the Jewish law. So yeah, you, you're right. Are you after a frog as well? Okay, I won't throw one at you then if you're not after one. <laughs> um, okay, so yes, the Talmud also mentions Jesus being crucified. Uh, the one quote for me, though, uh, that summarises it nicely is, uh, I'll ask again, does anyone know who this guy is? Anyone heard of him? John Dominic Crossan? Modern scholar, not, not, a, not a first century one. He's part of the Jesus Seminar. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone's heard of that. If you have heard of them, you'll know they're not exactly a, a Christian organisation. Yeah, that's right. Essentially provided the material for the Da Vinci Code, I think, <laughs> to, to some degree. Um, but yes, definitely not a Christian apologetic association. He's a sceptical man, there is no doubt. He said that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. So I think we've proved fact one there pretty, pretty solidly. Jesus died by crucifixion. Fact two, Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and appeared to them. So that is our second fact. Now this one is a bit more complex. There are two sides to this one. They claimed it and they believed it. Okay, so we're going to attack both of those, both of those sides. We're going to start with Paul. So the they claimed it side of things can be remembered with the acronym POW. So we're going to look at Paul, we're going to look at oral tradition, and we're going to look at the written works of the early church. P-O-W. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 3 to 8. In fact, let, we'll go there and I'll read it out. This is obviously Corinthians. Paul wrote it. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, also as to one abnormally born. Paul wrote Corinthians. Paul's claiming that Jesus appeared to him. Simple. Um, who's Paul? What Does he have authority to say that? I mean, do, do we want to look at that? Well, Paul claimed he had authority, um, but again, anyone can do that. The early church fathers also um, acknowledged his authority. So it wasn't as if it was just Paul going off on some random theory. Um, it was attested by all. Oral tradition. Now, you might not, you, you probably know about oral tradition, but you might not know it in that term. Um, 
how easy today is it to write something down on a piece of paper or um, on your phone or on your tablet, uh, whatever it be? That did not exist in the first century, not even the pen and paper, obviously, uh, too, in that. Many things in that century were passed uh, on verbally uh, or by oral tradition. Now, is this like a game that we used to play at school, which is called telephone or actually called something worse when I was at school, which I'm not going to say on the pulpit because it's very politically incorrect? Yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought it was politically incorrect. Is, is it like that game? Well, no, it's not, because in that game, one person starts, whispers to the next person, they whisper, at the end you've got a completely different story. Oral tradition was, I spoke to Rob with witnesses, Rob then spoke to others. I was still listening at that point. It's self-checking. There's no secrets, there's no whispering about it. It's passed down. It's <laughs> they didn't sort of pass it down and said, oh, well, you've roughly got it, go on. It was checked. Exactly right. It came out of a, yeah, a self-authenticating group. Exactly, exactly right. And yeah, if, if one person started doing the wrong thing, they would all correct that person. So yes, that's right. It's self-checking. Uh, so, and a lot, of, a lot of creeds were formed like this. So do we have an early creed that describes the resurrection and the appearances? Well, yeah, as Rob has rightly pointed out, we just read it. So that creed in First Corinthians is incredibly reliable. It's been dated to probably within five years of Jesus' crucifixion. So remember before we had those um, key things we wanted to fulfil, early testimony was one of them. Also, Paul received this creed from Peter and James in Jerusalem, so from the eyewitnesses. At the very latest, Paul might have received this as late as 51 AD, but that's still within 20 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. So the creed's important. It records early testimony, uh, probably eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, and multiple testimonies to the resurrection. You've got Peter, you've got the 12, you've got more than, the, more than 500, you've got James, and then you've got Paul. So you've got individuals and you've got groups there. In fact, I think it, even in the, in the scripture, Paul says some of these people are still alive to this day. Go and check with them. It's well known. Sort of. Written works of the early church. As critical as scholars might be, they do all accept that the four Gospels and Acts were written during the first century. So these had to have been written within 70 years of Jesus' death and resurrection and clearly all mention the death and resurrection or expressed differently, which is what our fact is, the disciples' belief that he rose from the dead. What about the Apostolic Fathers though? It didn't all just stop once the original disciples died. They witnessed, shared their faith to others who continued in their work. So we've got Clement, Bishop of Rome here. Many historians believe that he had seen the apostles and had fellowship with Peter in particular. What does he have to say about it? Well, writing to the Corinthian church, he writes about the disciples, having received orders and complete certainty caused by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, they went preaching that the kingdom of God was about to come. Clement says that the apostles were fully assured of Jesus' resurrection. What about the church father who would have met the apostles, or definitely met the apostles, Polycarp? In fact, many think Polycarp was appointed by John the Apostle. Again, we have direct connection with the original, apostle, uh, original disciples. What did Polycarp say, though? About the apostles, Polycarp wrote, For they did not love the present age, but him who died for our benefit, for our sake, was raised by God. In his letter to the church in Philippi, Polycarp mentions the resurrection five times. 
So in summary, we've got nine historical sources that show multiple, multiple eyewitness testimony to the disciples' belief of witnessing the risen Jesus. Paul, we've got creeds, we've got four gospels, uh, we've got Acts, we've got Clement, we've got Polycarp. So nine historical sources. This is good evidence, and this is virtually why all scholars today believe that the disciples said Jesus appeared to them, risen from the dead. What about the second part? They claimed it. Did they believe it, though? Jesus' resurrected appearances to the disciples authorised his message and his ministry. The disciples now had confidence upon seeing the risen Jesus. What did they do with this, though? I'm going to run through some historical sources which record that the disciples believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. Who remembers what Peter and the others did at the arrest and crucifixion? Yep, exactly. They, they denied him, some denied him, they abandoned him and they hid in fear. When the but we also hear that when the disciples, sorry, that the disciples were persecuted for believing and preaching and they did something very different beyond so once they had abandoned him, they hid in fear, and then we're going to say Jesus appeared to them, what did they do? What was their behaviour now after they had seen the risen Christ? Okay, Book of Acts. If you've read this, you'll know that the disciples were willing to suffer and did suffer for their belief that the risen Jesus appeared to them. Back to our old friend Polycarp here, who himself suffered and was martyred. He describes the unlimited endurance he had seen in Ignatius, Zosimus and Rufus, the Apostle Paul and the rest of the Apostles. In association with Jesus, they also suffered together. Tertullian reports Peter was crucified, Paul was beheaded under Nero. Nero was the first uh, emperor to execute uh, Christians. He was emperor from 54 to 68 AD. Therefore, we know that Peter and Paul were executed in that date range. Most think it was around 64 AD, though. So again, very early. Origen was a church father. He wrote that the disciples' devotion to the teachings of Jesus was attended with danger to human life and that they were amongst the first to manifest their disregard for death's terrors. He also wrote, Jesus, who has both once risen himself and led his disciples to believe in the resurrection and so thoroughly persuaded them of its truth that they, all, that they show to all men by their sufferings how they are able to laugh at all the troubles of life, beholding the life eternal and the resurrection clearly demonstrated to them both in life and deed. He also writes, confirming Peter was crucified upside down and Paul being martyred in Rome by Nero. Okay, Eusebius. Known as the first church historian, wrote in about 325 AD. He quotes Josephus, Hegesippus, I've not said that right, Clement of Alexandria on the martyrdom of James, and uh, who was the brother of Jesus. Then reading Peter and Paul's martyrdoms, he quotes Dionysius, Tertullian and Origen. Quoting lots here. All of these sources we spoke of, both biblical and non-biblical, affirm the disciples' willingness to die for their faith. That's the point here. Now, you could raise an objection to this, say, just because someone's willing to die for something doesn't actually make it true. It's probably a fair point. However, that's not the point we're actually making here. All we're trying to show by their willingness to suffer was that they regarded their beliefs to be true. What we're showing is that they didn't lie about the appearances of the risen Jesus. Liars make very poor martyrs. 
However, it's important to remember here, if we're, still, if we're still a bit unsure about that one, something we see day to day on our news. Someone can sacrifice their life today for something they sincerely believed uh, happened in the past. We see this every day. This isn't the argument I'm making, though. The disciples were actually around to see whether or not it took place. They would know if it happened or not. If someone was persecuting for something you were an eyewitness to, you're going to have a lot more confidence than if someone just told you believe it because it happened 2,000 years ago. I'm not saying the extremist on the news today doesn't believe in what they stand for. They are extremely sincere. I, I'm with you, but that's not the point we're making. They weren't in a position to see if it happened or not. They're going off the testimony of others. Now, that, that is what we're doing too, in a way. But again, not the point. We're talking about the original disciples. They saw Jesus and then their lives were changed, as we've discussed. To drill at home, contemporary martyrs die for what they believe to be true. The disciples of Jesus died for what they either knew to be true or false. That's the key difference there. Okay. The highly critical New Testament scholar Rudolf Boltman agreed that historical criticism, which is, is what we're doing today, can show that the first disciples came to believe in the risen, uh, in the risen Jesus. And another, an atheistic New Testament scholar, Gerd Ludemann, concludes, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and his disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. So there's, there's no denying what they believed. There's no myth here. This is historically certain. Those that were eyewitnesses believed that he raised, to the dead, raised from the dead and appeared to them. If the early disciples believed it and paid for it in their blood, there is no way that they cooked up this story about maybe stealing the body. In fact, no scholar today even grants that stolen body theory, which we'll touch on in a bit. So to recap, we've got our first two facts. Jesus died by crucifixion and the disciples believed Jesus rose from the dead. Remember, accepted by almost everyone. The second fact was the longest. It's all much shorter on from here, so there's a, a reprieve. Fact three. The church persecutor Paul was suddenly changed. We've got Paul's own testimony regarding this. We've got Luke's record in the book of Acts. We also have a story recorded in Galatians where Paul said within three years of his conversion, he was not known to the believers by sight, but rather he was known as the one who once persecuted us and is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So what caused this change in Paul? Multiple records say Paul believed that he experienced the risen Jesus. Paul's case is interesting, if you think about it, because when he first saw the risen Jesus, he was an enemy to the Christian message. So even Jesus' enemies saw him risen. Again, his belief was so strong that he was willing to suffer continuously for the sake of the gospel, even to the point of martyrdom. Other than the biblical books we've, we've read of that in, uh, Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Tertullian, Dionysus of Corinth and Origen all make that claim. So we've got multiple early first-hand testimony that Paul became converted and turned from being a staunch opponent to one of its greatest proponents, to Christianity's greatest proponents. <clears throat> Big deal, you might say. Many people have converted from one set of beliefs to another. What makes Paul so special? Again, that's the wrong question. Many people convert on the basis of hearing the message from somebody else and believing that message. 
That's not how Paul was converted. Paul believed he had first-hand eyewitness contact with the risen Jesus. Paul didn't believe on the basis of anyone else. His information is primary, direct from the source. He would have known if he'd seen him or not. And I think the one that clinches it for mine, yes, okay, he could have made it up. But why then trade his reasonably comfortable life for one of beatings, shipwrecks and sufferings? He was in a position of power before this. Most people lie to gain something. What possibly did Paul gain for his testimony? It had to be true. The purifying work of suffering made sure of it. James. Who kn- this, this should be an easier one. Who, who was James? You've already answered. <laughs> You've got a chocolate already too, Alicia. <laughs> Daniel. <laughs> yeah, I think we've all said it now. Uh, yeah. So James was uh, the brother of Jesus. The Gospels report that Jesus had at least four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas and Simon, plus unnamed sisters. If we want to look outside the Bible, though, Josephus, who we spoke about before, the Jewish historian, wrote that the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, whose name was James. So there it is there. That's pretty straightforward. Now, to be fair, though, the information we have on James isn't as much as Paul, but it's still virtually certain uh, what we're claiming here. So I'm not sure if I said it before, but the reason we're looking at James is because his faith suddenly changed. A bit like Paul too. The Gospels report that Jesus' brothers, including James, were unbelievers during his ministry. Now, the ancient creed that we spoke about in 1 Corinthians discussed whom Jesus appeared to. Then he appeared to James, it says. After Jesus' resurrection and appearances, we read that James is identified as the leader of the Jerusalem church. Not only did James convert, but his beliefs in Jesus and his resurrection were so strong that, like Paul, he died as a martyr because of them. We know this from Josephus, Hegesippus, again, Clement of Alexandria. His martyrdom is attested to by Christian and non-Christian sources. Now again, you'll all be sick of hearing this from me, but we can use the Bible because we're only using it as as a collection of historical letters and documents. We're not saying just because it's in the Bible it must be true. That's an argument we can have another day. In this case, we're just saying they were historical documents. Critical scholar Reginald Fuller says that even if we didn't have the records of those events taking place, we'd have to invent them to explain these two things. James's conversion from scepticism and his elevation to the head of the Jerusalem church, the centre of ancient Christianity. If Jesus didn't appear to James, how come that happened? So again, it's a bit like the Paul uh, fact. What did James see that changed him from a sceptic to a believer that was willing to suffer a martyr's death? The four facts, and I'm sure you all know them by now. I'll share the photos out later. But um, Jesus died by crucifixion. The disciples believed Jesus rose from the dead. Conversion of Paul, conversion of James. So these are minimal facts that are nearly accepted by every scholar, whether Christian or not. You thought it was finished. I've got one more fact. This, though, isn't a minimal fact, so that needs to be clear. Not all scholars believe that this is historically certain. However, before we stop listening and think, well, don't worry about this one, Gary Habermas, who, who part wrote the book, reckons around 75% of all biblical scholars believe that it's accurate. 
So it's still believed by a majority. We're going to look at three arguments for the empty tomb. We've got the Jerusalem factor, enemy attestation, and the testimony of women. That might have woken a few people up. The Jerusalem factor. That was a nice shot. Jesus was publicly executed in Jerusalem. His post-mortem appearances in the empty tomb were both proclaimed there. There is no way that Christianity could have got off the ground in Jerusalem if the body was still there in the tomb. Let's imagine it was. The disciples start to preach a risen Jesus. There's a crowd getting up. The Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders are thinking, oh, we've got to stop this. What would they do? Drag the corpse out. He's still here. This is, this is, you're lying, you know. But what did they do? The historical record says nothing to a, a public display or anything like that. There is total silence from critics in Jerusalem and no contrary writing in the early Roman and Jewish writings. Enemy attestation. <clears throat> if your parents say that you're an honest person, we may have some reason to believe them. However, we can also have reservations because they may be biased. They love you at the end of the day. How much stronger, though, if an enemy who hates you admits that you're an honest person? There's no bias here. Let's see how the enemies of Christianity dealt with the empty tomb. We read in Trifo, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, and of course in Matthew, that the early critics of Christianity claimed the disciples stole the body. What does that explanation assume? I'll open that up. Who said that? Oh, very good. I didn't tell her that either. Yep. Excellent. Yep. I want to see you catch it. Oh, fair enough. Uh, so, yeah, exactly right. The enemies indirectly stated that the tomb was empty. If you tell your teacher that the dog ate your homework, you're doing so because the homework's missing. This is actually, this empty tomb theory is the only opposing theory in the early uh, records that was given which is quite interesting. And like I said before, no scholar today believes that the body being stolen uh, was, a, was a reasonable theory. All right, and our last uh, argument for the empty tomb. The testimony of women. Anyone care to share with us what they believe the context of women's testimony in the first century was from a Roman and Jewish perspective? No, that's a very good way of saying... Here you go, man. Well done, participation. <laughs> okay, so I'll, gi I'll give us two quotes. I did see your hand up too, Bill. I'm sure you were going to say the same thing. Exactly. Exactly what I'm about to say. So I'm really glad I just got you. <laughs> All right, so the Talmud says, Sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to a woman. There you go. Roman, Roman and Jewish source Josephus, who we've talked about before, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their gender. So now I'm not... Now, hold on. <laughs> Please don't think I'm agreeing with this or, or that God thinks that way. That's definitely not what I'm saying. It's just the context with which the disciples were dealing with. Now, if you were going to create a myth and wanted everyone to believe in it, what are you going to do? Are you going to have in each of the four Gospels the women being the four primary witnesses to the empty tomb. Of course you're not. You're going to have men. You're going to have lots of men <laughs> seeing it. But of course in the Gospels, men are only mentioned appearing later and only in two of the Gospels, with women being primary in all four. 
The empty tomb appears historically credible in light of this. The records are not a creation. They didn't make it up. It must have been what actually took place. It goes back to that embarrassment uh, criteria we looked at before. William Wand, a former Oxford University church historian, wrote, all the strictly historical evidence we have in favour of an empty tomb, oh, sorry, all the strictly historical evidence we have is in favour of an empty tomb. Those who reject it do so on grounds other than scientific history. The empty tomb by itself proves little. If Jesus didn't appear, then yes, the body could have been stolen, but we've got to combine it with our four other facts. It's, all co it's also consistent with the beliefs of the disciples, Paul and James, that Jesus rose from the dead. So on its own, the empty tomb proves little, but never has nothing meant so much as to when we come to the empty tomb of Jesus. Can someone describe to me what this show is about? Very good. It's a story about nothing, but at the same time, it's a story about everything. I mean, you don't watch it bored. You're interested in it. In the same way, the empty tomb is everything. If the tomb was empty, it is because Jesus rose from the dead. Then God exists and eternal life is both possible and available. What have we done today? We've looked at how important the resurrection is to our faith, the Christian message, and to its historicity. We looked at the minimal facts, and I'm sure you can all recite them, but I'll do them anyway. Death by Jesus' death by crucifixion, disciples' belief that Jesus appeared, conversion of Paul, conversion of James, and then remembering not a minimal fact, but a majority-supported fact, the empty tomb. So what does this give us? These facts are so strongly attested historically that a majority, remember, a majority of scholars agree with them. So what do we got? Shortly after Jesus' death, his disciples believed that they saw him risen from the dead. They claimed he appeared to individuals among them, as well as several groups. Two of those who once viewed Jesus as a false prophet believed that he appeared to them risen. Both of them became Christian as a result. These, facts, these five facts point very strongly to the theory that Jesus actually was resurrected from the dead. It best accounts for all five of the facts. Now, we don't have time to go through every objection possible. Um, for that, I'd say have a read of the book. Uh, but I will touch on those ones that we brought up at the beginning. So one could say that the disciples experienced grief hallucinations. However, how does that account for the empty tomb, if we're saying that is a fact? Or how does that account for the conversion of Paul? At the beginning of Acts, he was hardly grieving over Jesus' death. What about the accusation that the disciples were lying? Well, I think you've got this one now. We dealt with this and showed that their martyrdoms and James's conversion, uh, that they actually believed he appeared to them. Yeah, what about calling the resurrection legend, uh, that it wasn't even taught by the disciples? Remember that the creed from 1 Corinthians originated within five years of Jesus' resurrection and that the disciples created it. There's no chance for that. Like I said before, any other objections? Have a read of the book. It's quite, I think the facts and what we've been through today is probably the first 60 pages and then the next 200 go through a variety of objections. And the key points, have, just to summarise them now, is to just remember that these five facts, we have to deal with them. Someone could say, oh, well, I don't believe in miracles. Okay, deal with the facts. 
keep dealing with the facts. That's the easiest way to navigate these, these conversations. So, are we a bit more confident today? Have we, have we learnt a couple of things? If that's the case, and we've had a few more calories with the Freddos, my work is done. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Wasn't that great? Yeah. You did a great job. A lot of homework there. Maybe well-researched. I'm glad you brought up about the, uh, the, the one about the empty tomb and uh, yeah. Yeah. With, with the women's testimony. I wanted to see the reactions in the church. But, um, I was hoping for more of a laugh. <laughs> you, you got enough. Well, we all chuckled, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, that's right. All right, wasn't that good? You got a lot out. Let's pray, uh, let's pray before we pack up. And uh, Lord, just thank you for this time. Thank you for um, this fantastic message that Matthew's just brought to us. And uh, Lord, I pray that all of us will, oh, for one, have just um, looked upon a few uh, of those facts there and thought, yeah, I've never thought of that before. And uh, have it just uh, up our sleeve now for those times when we do face people that are uh, uh, potentially going to try to disprove our faith by attacking the uh, resurrection. But so thank you for um, just all those points there. And Lord, put it on our hearts to get that book and have a read as well. Lord, I just pray your blessing over everyone here. I pray that you help us all to um, uh, just get through the different things, various things that we're going through, Lord, and uh, keep us strong and healthy and bless our weak, um, protect us and guide us, um, heal us, Lord, if we need healing, Lord. Uh, Keep us filled with joy and happiness and um, also help us to um, uh, any, any different situations and scenarios in our life that we're dealing with. Help us to find a way through, we pray in the name of Jesus. So just bless our time, our fellowship time, and uh, cover us all in your precious blood and watch over us continuously in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.